Welcome to the Didache Divine Service. Tonight is our fifth session. We will be focusing on the first article of the Apostles' Creed, the second of two parts on the first article, covering from Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Man and the Fall into Sin. We begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, grant that the birth of your only begotten Son in the flesh may set us free from the bondage of sin. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 953. we continue to pray concerning the Ten Commandments and then the Creed. The Ten Commandments preach repentance. They show us our sin and how much we need a Savior. The Creed preaches the faith that saves us from our sin. The Creed proclaims to us all that God has done, that God loves us, and has done everything in love to save us from sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. We confess the creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And as we conclude the first article study tonight, I want to invite you to turn in the hymnal to page 322. There was not room to include the explanation to the first article on the handout for tonight, but the entire catechism, its primary texts of the commandments, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the texts of baptism, Lord's Supper, and Confession of the Keys, are printed in the hymnal along with the explanations to those primary texts. So on page 322, following the Ten Commandments, you see on the right-hand column, the creed as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. And we teach by reciting, by speaking out loud, by then meditating in the home on these texts. You see there under creation the first article that we just confessed, the very shortest of the three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Last week we discussed creation, especially according to Genesis chapter 1, and that when the creed says, maker of heaven and earth, we looked at Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which includes all things. So everything was created by God, and all things are dependent upon God. Now the catechism explanation after what does this mean, I want you to notice as we recite it together, and then I'll have some further comments afterwards, the highly personal character of the explanation to the first article. That you are the object of God's love. Each one of you is the object of his love. His creation, his preservation, providing you with food and drink and clothing and shoes and house and home and so forth. Protection from danger and harm. And as we talk about the curse of the fall tonight from the text of Genesis. Doesn't mean there's not problems, difficulties, disease, hardship, the pain of childbirth, the toil of daily work. There is. But God preserves us and protects us and guards and keeps us. So notice the personal character in the explanation. And it's an explanation that's drawn from the entire fabric of the Old and New Testaments, God's word that speaks about God as creator and his ongoing creation and care for us, his children. So let us speak together. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, 
that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him, this is most certainly true. As you meditate upon those words, and we invite everyone in the congregation to learn them by heart, it shapes the way you think about life that is so very different from the world in which we live. I'd like to say three things about this explanation. First, we live in a world that doesn't believe in God, or if there's an acknowledgement of a deity, he is separated and distinct from our day-to-day -day life. Okay? Which leads to the second important point, specifically now about this text. It underscores the Christian understanding and confession that everything that I am and have comes from God as a gift of his grace. So we don't think about that. Our stature, I'm about five feet, almost eight inches. I weigh about 150 pounds. I have brown eyes. My blood pressure is about 120 over 60. My resting heart rate is about 50. That's pretty good. That's all a gift from God. I have four sons and four daughters-in-law. I have one and only one wife that I've been married to for 37, 38 years actually now, okay. Uh, eight grandchildren. I have a house and our family and the love that we share makes it a home, going back to the explanation. Um, I have clothing. I have long pants, I have sweaters, I have shirts, I have t-shirts, I have underwear. I have shoes, I have several black dress shoes, one pair of brown shoes. I have a couple of pairs of, uh, I guess, what do they call them, tennis shoes. I have work boots. I have insulated winter boots that I could wear if I were snowmobiling or giving out fish fry at the, in the middle of January, which I do, which means I also have a, an insulated uh, coverall that I wear when I'm handing out fish fries. You get the point. I have never been in an automobile accident where I've been driving. I've been in one or two uninjured when other people have been driving. I have had surgeries 
When I was 19 years old, seven and a half hour surgery, five days later, a two and a half hour surgery, I've been in intensive care, I'm out of intensive care. Well, I'm here now. A year later, I was hiking 10,000 feet up in the Grand Tetons. I could go on and on and on. You think about your own life, you could do the same thing. All of that is spoken of by him. God has made me and all creatures. He's given me my body and soul, my eyes and ears and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and he still takes care of them. Every day that I get up in the morning, that you get up in the morning, is a gift of God's grace. Every breath that we take, it comes from him. Every morsel of food and drink that we partake of comes from him. Just like it says, he gives me clothing and shoes, food, drink, house, home, land, animals, wife, children, land, animals, and all I have. And he richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support me in this body and life. And he's done the same for you. What do we tend to do? We look at our life, one thing is missing, or one thing is a hardship, and God has abandoned us. And the Christian understanding and, and, and confession is that every moment of our existence, for me, 61 years, for you, John, how many years? 81. 81. He's 20 years older than I. And every day is a gift. Okay? And by the way, through the things that we suffer and the use of things like doctors and medicine, we are given the opportunity to care for one another. God is at work in that. Remember, last week we talked about how God enjoys uh, taking us up in his creative work and in his dominion. We specifically were talking about the procreation of children and the exercise of dominion. But after the fall into sin, mercy work, compassion, care for one another, that's an extension of also being made in the image and likeness of God where he cares for us. So those are opportunities that we're given to share in his work. He defends me against all danger, guards and protects me from all evil. And that leads now then to the third point. All of this that we've just talked about is from his fatherly divine goodness and mercy to put it in another term, his love. Remember, I asked you, what is God's nature? Love. Self-giving, sacrificial love. If we firmly believed what the first article confesses and what the catechism explanation encourages us to understand about God as our creator, we would have far less anxiety about life realizing how he sustains everything and how he cares about each one of us personally. Okay, that's the first article, it's explanation. Before we go to the biblical text, does anyone have a question about perhaps anything that I said or that's in the catechism here? All right, let's go to number four, the Bible reading, Man in the Fall into Sin. Excerpts from chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, 15 through 25, and then the first 19 verses of Genesis chapter 3. This is an important text because it teaches us 
how we got from being created in the image and likeness of God in a state of innocence without sin to where we are today in the world. Fallen creatures. Humanity separated from God. The problems of life like disease, earthquake, famine, pestilence, hurricanes, tornadoes, the pain of childbirth and rearing, the toil of daily life. You look out over the creation, and on a sunny day in the summer, if it's 75 degrees, and the clouds are just floating along, it doesn't seem as if anything is wrong with the creation. But when you endure tornadoes, thunderstorms, upheaval in the creation, just in terms of weather, you see something seems a little bit out of joint. Our bodies are wonderful machines created by God, but they're subject to disease. They wear out. They don't last forever. So the beautiful, it is very good of creation. Something has happened to bring about the evil in the world and the problems that every one of us bears. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2. It does a replay, starting with verse 7, of the creation of man. Remember last week in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. The triune God of love said this. There was conversation among the persons of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image to be like God is, a community of loving persons, and to do the things that God does. And there were those two things. Remember what they are? Be fruitful and multiply, the procreation, the having of children, and exercise dominion, okay? A gracious, benevolent dominion. That's what God does. So we're created to be like he is and to do what he does. Male and female, he created them. Now in chapter 2, it discusses the creation of man in slower motion and in greater detail. The creation of man and the creation of male and female, the order of creation, the woman from the man, and the opportunity to exercise dominion, and also the fall into sin. The institution of marriage specifically is talked about here. That it is God who institutes it. It is God who brings man and woman together in the union of holy matrimony, which when consummated is called one flesh, out of which, when God so wills, there's children. And then in chapter 3, the breach, the rebellion against God and the fall into sin. Okay? So, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Where is Eve at this time? Where is the woman? Within Adam. So God forms him of the dust of the ground. It's very interesting 
that compared to Genesis chapter 1, God said, and it was so. Here, when talking about man, God forms him of the dust of the ground. And I'd like to suggest to you to think about the, again, very intimate relationship that God intends us to understand about the creation of each one of us. Psalm 139 spoke about how we were formed in our mother's womb, knit together there. Okay, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my rising up and my lying down. You know everything about me. I was formed by you. Psalm 139 talks about in the lowest parts of the earth. It's a reference to the wombs of our mothers. Okay? So the order and design of each one of us is not only known by God, but directed by God. So Adam is formed of the dust of the ground. And in a moment, we'll see Eve is formed out of him, which shows, again, the intimate relationship between the husband and the wife. Even as there is a most intimate relationship between the father and the son, the son is the only begotten of the father. The woman is taken out of the man. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, what this indicates is that it's not just a few of the trees were pleasant to the sight. They were all pleasant to the sight. It's not that God created some trees, but he didn't create the others. He created all things. Good for food, pleasant to the sight. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. So by its name, what does that tree give? Life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that tree give? Knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about that. It is a knowledge that doesn't make one smarter if one were to partake of it, but the knowing of being involved with something. So, in other words, if you had drugs, if you had cocaine or heroin, and you've never partaken of it, and then you partook of it, you would know the experience of that. It would not necessarily bring a blessing to you whatsoever, but you would know it by experience. Uh, the sexual union in chapter 4, after the fall into sin, when Adam knew Eve, his wife, it is not how do you do, it's nice to meet you for the first time, but it is speaking about the sexual union. So to know each other in that way, this kind of intimacy. So the knowledge of good and evil should not be thought of as um, some type of superior knowledge, but the knowing by experience. And when you partake of something that is not good for you, there is a knowing, but it is not for your benefit. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So, this is before the fall into sin. 
according to that verse 15, tending and keeping the garden, what activity existed even before the fall into sin? Work. Why? If we're made in the image and likeness of God, why was there work before the fall? Because God created, he worked and created, we're made in his image, exercise dominion. The command to be fruitful and the command to exercise dominion, which would mean engage in work, existed prior to the fall. And it's directly connected to being made in the image and likeness of the triune God of love. And the Lord God commanded the gardens, uh, the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in those bolded sections of verse 16 and 17, I want you to think of the goodness of God and the love of God articulated by those words that are bolded. Why is this an expression of the goodness of God and the love of God? Someone answer. Why is it an expression of that? Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Why is that an expression of God's goodness and love? Beth? Two things, okay. One, you can eat from a superabundant number of trees. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. There's an expression of God's goodness and love as he provides for them. And two, and he's warning them about the one that would bring about their separation from God and death. That's good. It's only from our sinful perspective that we don't consider it good. We ignore of every tree you may freely eat, and then we get angry at God for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though in our state of innocence before the fall, he warned us, don't eat it, you will surely die. Everything they needed was in that word. For that word provided them with the food they needed to sustain their life, and their relationship with God, and the protection against that which would bring about their death, their separation from God, and destruction. What more do you need? So that is an expression of the goodness and the love of God. Okay? Some often ask, and I'll anticipate the question, if that tree could bring about their death and separation from God, why was it there in the first place? The the tree, the tree signifies the fact that we are made, in, we were made in a state of innocence. That God wished to have a relationship with us and to share his love and life with us, and that could not be coerced. It had to be freely received and freely reciprocated. So he didn't create us as robots. There had to be the possibility of turning away from him or it would not have been a relationship of love. Just like when you courted Nancy, Tom, did you force her to love you? Did you force her to marry you? And if you had, it would not have been any union reflective of what it means to be made 
in the image and likeness of the triune God of love. All right, continuing on. And the Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Why is it not good for the man to be alone? What's the answer? He cannot procreate. Try as he might, he cannot procreate alone. Nor can he effectively exercise dominion. Yeah, okay, love. He needs one to love. Good. So it's not good for the man to be alone because he needs one to love because he is made in the image and likeness of God. So he needs one to love. He cannot procreate alone, nor can he exercise dominion. It's why children, for example, need to be brought up in a household where there's a father and a mother. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed man, every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now remember, did God call things and give them names in Genesis 1? Yes or no? Yes. So now the Lord God brings the animals before Adam for him to do the same kinds of things. And in so doing, what is he exercising? Dominion. You see how God shares that with us. Uh, to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Look at the authority that God extends from himself to Adam in the exercise of dominion. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And that's not because God did not know. He was not bringing the animals before Adam to see if maybe one of them could be his wife. There are two things going on. He's giving him the opportunity to exercise dominion in the naming of the animals. And then secondly, to teach him and us, by extension, because the scriptures are written for our benefit, that there is one unique relationship, that of the woman, taken out of man, that is uniquely fit or comparable to him, enabling him to fulfill the image and likeness of God. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Notice, who is the one running the verbs, you know, driving the action here? God. He's the one doing the doing. The Lord caused the deep sleep. The Lord took one of his ribs. The Lord closed up the flesh. The rib the Lord had taken, he made into a woman. Then the Lord brought the woman to the man. This is not only the creation of man, it is also the institution of marriage, and it helps us have an understanding of what happens from this time forward. That there is a new family unit created with a head and the helpmeet every time 
a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh in marriage. It is a return to the Garden of Eden. This is what we call the order of creation. Before talking about what it is that Adam then confesses, we have talked some about last week, the week of creation, six days, then he rests on the seventh. We've talked about how a day was evening and then morning, and how those things anticipated Christ and the salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The evening and the morning. The evening of sin and death, the morning of new life in Christ. The darkness of Good Friday, the dawning of the new day at the resurrection on Easter. The week of creation, it's completed the creation of all things, on the sixth day, which is Friday. And then completing all that he has done, he rests on the seventh day. The week of redemption. On Friday, Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. And then he rests in the grave and is raised from the dead to life again on Easter Sunday. Here now, the first man, Adam, his wife, his bride, is created from his side, and then the Lord brings her to him, this union called one flesh. In the St. John Passion from John's Gospel, chapter 19, Jesus dies upon the cross, the spear pierces his side, the blood and water flows out. So Christ is true man. And when we, in the four lessons that follow this, we'll be talking about that in greater detail. The bride of Christ is the church formed from the blood and water that flows from his side, the water of holy baptism, the blood of the holy supper, form the church. And as St. Paul would say, make her a beautiful bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. So I draw these things to your attention now so that when we get to texts that deal with them, you can remember them. Uh, God is never doing anything as an afterthought. It's not as if he created us and then we fell into sin and he thought, oh no, now what am I going to do? He knew what was going to happen which also gives rise to the question, if he knew Adam and Eve were going to rebel, why did he create them in the first place? And my classic answer that I give to people is, if you, as husbands and wives, knew that your children were going to be disobedient, why did you have them? And did any one of you who are fathers and mothers think that your children would be perfect and never do anything wrong? I don't think so. The answer, why did you do it? It was for love's sake. If that's true of us, and we knew before we had children that they would be conceived in sin and be naughty, 
Why did we do it? For love's sake. If that's true of us, how much more is it true of God? So I want you to begin to anticipate that what it is to be a man, to be made in the image and the likeness of God as a man, finally and ultimately is fulfilled only in the Son of God who becomes man, who is the man of faith in God, who never turns from God's word, who trusts in God, and who loves his bride, the church, of which we become members in holy baptism with an eternal and self-giving sacrificial love. That's what it means if we want to know what it is to be a man. We look to Jesus. And the ultimate expression of his headship, like the order of creation, Adam is the head, Eve is created from his side. But the ultimate expression of that is how Jesus dies for his bride, the church. And as we'll see in a moment, where Adam failed to speak the word of God that he was given to speak, Jesus never failed to do that. So we find in Jesus what we fail to be because of the fall into sin. He does for us what we cannot do. All right. Now, Adam confessed in verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Notice how he identifies in his bride Eve that she came from him, was created from him, and then God brought her to him to become one flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's what the word woman means, taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So notice how the creation of, of Adam and then Eve from Adam's side and God bringing them together is not for them only, but for us to understand that every one of you who were married find your understanding as husband and wife in this first marriage where the woman was taken out of the man and then brought by God to him and they were joined together in the bonds of holy matrimony as one flesh. And chapter 2 concludes by saying they were both naked the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Because at this moment, what is missing? Sin. So to have no shame means that there was a communion between Adam and Eve. All that was his was hers. All that was hers was his. Unbridled communion without reservation. The fall into sin immediately brings about isolation where we are not only separated from one another, but we withhold ourselves from one another, which is contrary to what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, if you turn over the page, it's chapter 3 where we have what is classically called the fall into sin, wherein Adam and Eve not only sin, but where they become sinful. And that is why the doctrine of original sin is so important to Christianity for understanding humanity today. We are not, since the fall, in a state of innocence. That was prior to the fall. Now we're in a state of corruption 
and in need of redemption and in need of regeneration, the creation of faith where there wasn't faith, of love for God where there wasn't love for God. Okay? So the doctrine of original sin is extremely important. I was brought forth in iniquity, King David says, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we become a sinner at the moment of our conception as the seed of the man and the egg of the woman come together, a sinner is conceived. Sin is the corruption of our human nature, which means we have no natural love for God or trust in God. So we are in need of regeneration, the creation of repentance and faith. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit especially. All right. Before reading chapter 3, one final question for preparation. Think about last week. How did God create? What was the source of life in creation? Rich? His word. Simple. Simple. God said and it was so. By the word of the of the Lord, all things were created and life was given. So if you turn away from the word of the Lord, what's the result? Death. That's right. Death and separation. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice, This is spoken of elsewhere in scripture, but the devil has entered into creation, into the serpent, and he tempts Adam and Eve. Has God indeed said? So what is the evil one calling into question from the very beginning of his conversation here with Eve? The word. God's word. And by extension, then, faith, Tom, you're correct. He wants to destroy faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. Trust, Faith is reliance upon God. And the object of our faith is Christ and his word, God and his word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Didn't God say that in chapter 2? Of every tree you may freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. From whom, specifically, would Eve, who was within Adam at the time that God spoke the word, from whom, specifically, would Eve have received that word of God? Adam. Martin Luther uses the um, analogy that Adam was the bishop. And he was called to be a preacher. His most sacred responsibility was to preach the word of God. Now, by the grace of God, I am preaching or teaching the word of God tonight. Is every word that I speak a direct quotation of the sacred scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which we call God's word? No. But that doesn't mean I'm not preaching God's word. So the Lord God said in chapter 2, 
You may freely eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. The day you eat of it, you shall die. Notice Eve here has, we shall not eat it, nor shall we touch it, lest you die. Where did that come from? Adam as her preacher. If something is going to kill you, if you eat it, stay away from it. This is not what God has given me. We do this with our children all the time. The analogy I use is Mama makes chocolate chip cookies. It's late in the afternoon. She says, you're not to eat any cookies before supper. It'll spoil your appetite. Do you think Mama wants them to fondle the cookie jar? No. Furthermore, is it possible to eat anything without touching it? It's impossible. As soon as you put your lips and teeth around it, you've touched it. All right. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, what is he calling God here? A liar. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that true? Brian, no. Why not? Well, he is lying to her when he says you'll be like God because actually if they are made in the image and likeness of God, they already are like God. So the lie is the assertion God hasn't made you in his image and likeness. God is withholding good things from you. He doesn't truly love you. You see? And remember what I said about knowing before. The knowing involves experience, not necessarily knowledge. So to experience sinfulness doesn't make one smarter or closer to God. But in this case, separates him from God and makes him more distant. So the woman... Uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. So what is she relying upon there? Her ears to hear God's word or other senses and influences? Yeah. There's a lot of things that God makes that are beautiful, that are not for you. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one of them. If you're married, the other woman in the workplace may be beautiful, but she is not given to you. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And I remember years ago, I wanted to check that out in the Hebrew. So I wanted to make sure, is this English... Addition, or is it in the Hebrew text? And it's in the Hebrew text, the original. Adam was with her. And this whole time, what was he keeping shut? His mouth. He, didn't, he wasn't defending God's word, the honor of God's word, nor was he defending his wife against the lies and deceit of the evil one. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Could they cover their sin and shame? No. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So had they become smarter, Brian, thinking they could hide from the Lord God? Well, but this is no smarts at all. You can't hide from God who knows all things. Then the Lord God called to Adam. Now notice, I have bolded this for a reason. The Lord God called to Adam in verse 9, verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, and then verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent. So it reflects the order of creation. When the devil came into the garden, he goes for Eve. When God comes into the garden, first of all, the sound of the Lord God that would have delighted them before the fall, now they're afraid because they are separated from God and corrupted by their sin. But God still goes to the head of the creation. In the New Testament, the fall into sin is blamed not on Eve, but on Adam, who is her head and with whom she was one flesh. And when you understand that Adam was there the whole time, but said nothing, then it underscores that. Where are you? Verse 9. And he asks not because he doesn't know, but to draw him out into the light of day. Here's the call to repentance. Remember what we said of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments preach repentance. They show us our sin, how much we need to save. Where are you? What is this that you have done? So forth. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is the Lord God, said, who told you that you were naked? Again, he asks not because he doesn't know, but he's trying to draw them out to confess the truth. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? See, I commanded you that you should not eat. My word is that which gives life and that which protects you and so forth. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So who does Adam blame? He blames Eve, but he blames God who gave Eve to her. Why did you give me this woman? One of the things that I find among the many interesting things about Genesis 3 is it spot on describes the life that we live. Remember I always said how we go from a state of innocence in chapter 1 and chapter 2 into the fall into sin and how things are today. You see in the responses of Adam, of Eve, exactly how our children respond who are conceived and brought in sin when we confront them. What is this that you have done? We ask them the same kinds of questions. Have you eaten from the cookie jar that I told you not to eat from? Well, it wasn't my fault. Sally gave me. See? If you had made the cookies in the first place, I wouldn't have eaten them. If you had made the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in the first place, I wouldn't be in this predicament. You see? Then the man, uh, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's the age-old blame game. The devil made me do it. Notice how Adam and Eve, neither one of them want to take responsibility for what they have done. 
Here again, rationalization, self-justification is so much a part of our sinful fallen nature. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. So the fact that the evil one entered into the creation to tempt Adam and Eve who had dominion over the creation, the creation is affected. And that's symbolized and typified in the snake crawling on the ground and eating from the dust. And then this all-important verse 15. And we're going to return to this verse next week, but I will explain it tonight. I will put enmity. So the Lord God is talking to the serpent, but in the presence of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your seed, devil, and her seed. Notice that seed is capitalized. He, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise, or the Hebrew verb here is crush your head, your authority, your power, devil. And you, devil, shall bruise or crush his heel. It is a prophetic riddle. How do you kill a snake? You stomp on its head. Who is the seed of the woman who will stomp on the head of Satan, the evil one? Christ, the Son of God. In so doing, his heel is bruised. What is it depicting? The suffering of Christ on the cross. So this particular verse speaks of the virgin birth because it speaks of the seed, not of the man, which is the ordinary way of speaking, but the seed of the woman. So the Blessed Virgin Mary is foretold here as the one who would be the mother of the Son of God. He is called the seed of the woman. Because he is virgin born. He is not born through the agency of a man, but by the Holy Spirit he is conceived, and then she gives birth. And in his suffering and death, he crushes the serpent's head with his heel. And in so doing, uh, he himself is uh, suffering and he dies. I talk a lot about the devil's power. We're going to return to this next week. Consider this. What is the devil's power but God's own word? The day you eat of it, you will die. So if I were to ask you the question, why did the evil one want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? So they would die. To separate them and destroy their relationship with God because it's not the angels who are the crown of his creation and Satan was a fallen angel who rebelled in arrogant pride. It's mankind who is the crown of God's creation. And so, unlike God, who is nature is self-giving sacrificial love, the evil one's nature is the opposite. Selfish, self-centered love. You can't even really call it love because it's diabolical. And so, the worst of humanity reflects that same kind of satanic, proud, arrogant, introverted, self-centered affections. All right. Now to the woman he said, now I have underlined this because this speaks of the curse of the fall. 
And the curse of the fall, again, describes what God did that help us understand why life is the way it is. It is God who, because of man's sin and rebellion, cursed the creation. Here it is. Because you have, he, uh, I will, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. You already have the battle of the sexes in that particular verse. You also have the foretelling of the pain, not only of childbirth, but the whole process of child rearing. Notice how this affects women in that most intimate area that is unique to them as women, the capacity to give birth to children. Psychologically, between the man and the woman, though they both can feel the pain and the sorrow of raising children, the emotional attachment of the mothers is greatest, and they feel the greatest sorrow and burden in the rearing of their children. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Can you imagine gardening without weeds? You shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So we've gone full circle, man being made from the dust of the ground, now returning to the dust. Now this curse of man's work, notice how it applies directly to be, uh, have dominion over the creation. See, the curse of the woman, be fruitful and multiply, in pain you will bring forth children have dominion, now work. There was work before the fall, but now it's toilsome. Now it's difficult. So if you wonder why work is hard, why we get tired and why we get worn out by it, why we get frustrated by it, it is because God cursed the creation. Now this is the essential parts of our human existence, being fruitful and multiplying, and it affects us there. But it's broader than that, too, because since God gave us dominion over the creation, the whole of creation is affected, just as we saw with the serpent is made to crawl around on the ground. But we were given the keys to the creation, so to speak, and we took the keys and we tossed them to the evil one. And he started up the car and smashed it into a tree, so to speak. The point that I'm making here is Adam and Eve who had been given dominion over the creation, who had this relationship with God, then relinquished that, abdicated their responsibility. And that's why we're going to talk about, starting next week, in detail, the concept of redemption. Redemption means buying back. So we talk about being redeemed from sin, being brought back from sin, purchased away from sin and the bondage to sin. So I'll return to the theme about, you know, there is no such thing since the fall of free will. If there were, then a sinner could say, I'm not going to sin anymore. Show me the sinner who can say that. I don't care if it's Mother Teresa or Pope John Paul II, whom I preferred over the current pope. That's another story, okay? <laughs> There's no such thing as a person without sin or can say, you know, I've decided I'm not going to sin anymore. If we actually had that power, 
Why don't we exercise it? Okay? Even as regenerate Christians who believe and love the Lord, even we struggle with sin. So redemption is a word we're going to talk about on the four lessons uh, having to do with the second article of the creed, the seed of the woman, the son of God. He redeems us from sin, buys us back by his holy precious blood. He redeems us from death. And he redeems us, he buys us back from the evil one. Remember the question I asked a little moment ago. I didn't let you respond. I answered it for you. What is the devil's power? The devil's power was God's own word. If they eat, they must die. The devil knew that God tells the truth. If they eat, they must die. So we're going to begin next week with the Annunciation of our Lord, the conception of the Son of God in the Virgin Mary's womb. Because what the Son of God does is essentially say, if you will, you're right, man must die. I will become man. And I will die man's death. And by doing that, he redeems us from the power of the devil to use God's own word to condemn us. That's why what Christ has done redeems us from the curse of the fall, from the bondage to sin, death, and the devil's power. And that's where we will begin next week. The bullet points summarize everything we talked about. We prepare for the sacrament by singing stanza one of hymn 954. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, 
confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the abundant mercy that you this day so richly have provided us, blessing us not only with daily bread for our bodies, but also with heavenly food for our souls. Grant that your living and powerful word may abide in our hearts, working mightily in us to your glory and for our salvation. We commit ourselves to your divine protection and fatherly care. Let your holy angels be with us, that the evil foe may have no power over us. Look in mercy on your church and deliver her from all danger and adversity. By your Holy Spirit, comfort and strengthen all who are in affliction or distress, and grant your abiding peace to us all. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who, having created all things, took on human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. For our sake he died on the cross and rose from the dead to put an end to death, thus fulfilling your will and gaining for you a holy people. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sion, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
In your righteous judgment, you condemn the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promise salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace. Amen. body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen.
body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his mercy endures Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you, even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. Hear us. For your name's sake, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.